0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 16.
1: Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valour. You shall march round the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march round the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march round the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, "'You shall not shout or make your voice heard, "'neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, "'then you shall shout.' So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going round at once." And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of, of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually." And the second day, they marched round the city once and returned into camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jane. Well, it's an iconic story, isn't it? Uh, In fact, if you've grown up in the church, you you probably, as you were hearing it, you might have had all of these images flashing through your head from the children's Bibles that you read as a kid, you know, the, the big city, the people marching around in an army, the The silence and then the big shout and the walls crashing down, falling down into the dust. This famous victory for God's people. There's something very physical about this story, very visual. You can almost feel it. You can almost see it. And yet, as I've been studying it over the last couple of weeks, I've come to realise that this is actually primarily a spiritual story. And that's what I want to explore today. Yes, this feels like a very physical passage, but underneath it, And behind it, there are these spiritual dimensions that make sense of it, both for God's people back then and I think for us as well, because once we understand these spiritual elements to this, the story will make a lot of sense for us as well. And to do that, you can go all the way back to the preparation for the battle. Uh, I love in war movies how there's this big long build-up to kind of build up the tension and you see the warriors prepare. That's what we see here as well in chapter 5 of Joshua. If you've got a Bible, open to chapter 5. We don't have that on the notes. But open to chapter 5 because there you see the preparation for this battle, except it's not a military preparation. It's not a physical preparation so much as it is a spiritual one where God brings his people together and gets them ready. And there's two things that he asks them to do. He asks them, the men to get circumcised and the people as a group to take the Passover meal. Now, the circumcision was a part of every Jewish boy's life. When he was eight days old, he'd be circumcised as a sign that he was part of the Jewish people. In, in so doing, this was a ceremony that was instituted by a guy called Abraham, and it welcomed the bloke into the covenant that God had for his people. Every Jewish boy would have this, but we learn in chapter 5 verse 5 that this current generation, the people who just arrived in the promised land, have not yet been circumcised. Now this is quite a serious thing because in Exodus we're told that if you're not circumcised, that you've broken the covenant, that you're not truly a part of God's people. And so this needs to be rectified. Before God's people can go forward and claim the land that God has promised them in the covenant, they have to make sure that they're part of that covenant. And so that's what happens now. It's like a a passport, so to speak, to come into the country. Okay, that might make sense, but you might be thinking, well, why does God wait until now to do it? So we know over the last couple of weeks that this generation of people have been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, so they've had a lot of time to do it, and this feels like the the worst time to do it. So we're told at the start of chapter 5 that as soon as they crossed the River Jordan, all the other nations freaked out, so this would be the best time to kind of press home their advantage, to go straight away to Jericho and take on the city. But now they're actually going to pause. They're going to have this, this ceremony, which is going to be pretty un- pretty uncomfortable for the guys. They're going to have to recover. And so it feels like this is the moment where Jericho will actually be able to fortify their defences. So why would God do this now? Well, I think it's a sign that God is starting again with this generation. The previous generation, as we've learned, has had stuffed things up. They'd come to the promised land and then they'd turned away in fright and unbelief. And so they'd been cut off by God. Now this new generation has emerged and God wants to assure them of their place in his plans. He's going to work in them and through them and for them to claim this land and this ceremony is part of that. God is starting again and as he as they, as he opens up his blessings to them, he also takes away the curse that they've been under. In verse 9 of chapter 5, we're told, after the people are circumcised, God declares, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That, that reproach is probably all of the kind of memories that they've had from the past. Their long era of slavery in Egypt, hundreds of years, the decades of wandering through the wilderness and the years of waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled, all of that now is being rolled away because God is starting again with them. That's also why I think they take Passover. Uh, Passover, you might remember, was the meal that God instituted for his people just as they were leaving Egypt at the start of the Exodus. And it seems like they haven't had that again until now. They have this meal one more time. And it's almost like God is saying, your journey is complete. So he brought them out of Egypt to take them into the promised land. And this, these meals bookend that whole experience. And tellingly, the very next day we're told that they get to eat from the fruit of the land itself and then the manna from heaven stops. See, all through their time in the wilderness, God had provided them manna or bread from heaven. Because the the wilderness was so barren and hostile, they couldn't find food for themselves. So so God would bring down bread from heaven because nothing was coming up from the earth. But now they've reached the promised land, and He'd always been promising them that when you get to the land, it'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. It'll be this beautiful, abundant place. And now they're experiencing that. They don't need this special manna from heaven because they can just take the fruit from the trees of this land. It's a beautiful moment where God is saying, your journey is at an end. You're here. Now come into this land that I've prepared for you. So God has been preparing his people through all of this. They're now ready to go. They're ready for Jericho. They're ready for all of the land. They're circumcised, they're part of the covenant and they're experiencing all of God's blessings. This is the moment to go forward. But there's also a preparation that he has, a special preparation that he has for Joshua, the leader of the people. See, Joshua, as we've seen, has been on this whole journey, hasn't he? He'd come up out of Egypt. He'd seen the the miracles in Egypt. He'd seen the Red Sea part as they were running away from Egypt. He was there at Sinai when God gave them his law. He was one of the first Israelites to enter the land. He was one of the spies who would tasted the fruit of the land. And now he's back here again, tasting it once more. And in all of this, through all of these experiences, God has been preparing him to lead the people. Even while Moses, the predecessor of Joshua, was still alive, Joshua had been commissioned as the next person in line. And as soon as Moses had died, God had said to Joshua, Arise, go and take the land. It's time to get moving. And it promised him success. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And now, just in this moment, God comes close to confirm this to him. In verse 13 of chapter six, of chapter five, we're told that Joshua is by Jericho, and it sounds like he's scoping it out. His army is in camp. They're getting ready to take Jericho. And Joshua is probably wondering how this is going to work. He's the commander of the army, of the Lord's army here, and he's thinking, how are we actually going to take this city? And you can imagine that he could well have been very intimidated by it. We know from archaeology and so on, it seems like uh, Jericho was a very impressive place, about eight or nine acres uh, in circumference, probably had two big, thick walls, very hard place to take on. Uh, Probably actually better to think of it as a fortress than a city. There weren't actually lots of people living there, most likely, but it was very well defended. And and Joshua is thinking to himself, how are we actually going to do this? I know God's promised it, but but how are we actually going to get into this city? They're not warriors. I mean, they've just been wandering through the wilderness for decades. How are they going to do this? And the people of Jericho, they're soldiers. So how are they going to do this? But in the midst of all of this, as Joshua wonders and worries, a strange figure appears. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about who this is. It's clearly, looks like a man. It seems like a man, as some sort of warrior. Some people think that it's an angel sent by God on this special mission. Now, many people think it's God temporarily taking on a human form. God is a spirit; doesn't have a body. But there are moments throughout Scripture where he he takes on a physical form. We call it a the fancy word for it is theophany, where God manifests Himself in a physical way. I think that's true here, but it's even going a little bit further. I would suggest and many writers suggest that this is actually Jesus Christ, that that before Jesus came in the flesh and was born from Mary, he came at certain moments throughout the Old Testament and here is one of those moments where Jesus appears in the flesh and he appears now with Joshua and he's coming with the authority of God because you see that Joshua's instinctive reaction is to fall on his face and to worship he senses that this is God. If it wasn't God, if it was just an angel, they would have corrected him. Next, though, the, uh, he is told that he is standing on holy ground. He is in the presence of God himself, of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this scene is an echo of something that happened with Joshua's predecessor. You remember in Exodus 3, perhaps, that when Moses uh, he The same figure, the angel of the Lord, appears to him in the burning bush and he's told to take his sandals off because the, the ground that he's on is holy ground. That was the moment where God had affirmed Moses as the leader of the people and now he's doing the same for Joshua. He's giving him the same profound experience of God. He's saying, you're the guy that I'm going to work through. You are the person who's going to lead my people. So it's very affirming, and yet it's also very humbling. You see, you might have noticed the strange conversation they have. Joshua asks this guy, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he gets this answer, verse fourteen, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. It's a kind of an enigmatic answer. It's sort of a no, but it's not a it's not a yes, but it's also not a no. What's happening here? Well, David Jackman suggests that Joshua's question receives no direct answer because it is the wrong question. You see, this this figure, this Jesus is the commander of the Lord's army and that places him in a different category. As Jackman says, he has come not to take sides but to take charge. And this is meant both to humble and encourage Joshua. See, Joshua imagines himself as the leader of God's people and he is the commander of the army. But here Jesus says, well, actually, I am the commander and he's here to lead his people. So what we learn here is that actually God is a warrior. Jesus is a warrior. You might have heard the phrase, uh, the Lord of hosts. We sometimes talk about God as the Lord of hosts. It can have a couple of different meanings. Sometimes the, the hosts refer to uh, the Israelites, the hosts of those armies, but often it refers to the angelic hosts. So 1 Kings 22, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. There is this sense that Jesus, God, is a warrior and the hosts are doing his bidding. And here... God comes to Joshua to encourage him. They face this great challenge, this big city, this land full of giants and mighty armies and fortified cities. But God says, I am with you. I will fight. And so we will win. And all that is required of Joshua and the people is faith and obedience. God is saying, As long as you do what I ask you to do, it'll all work out. That is the path to victory. That is the strategy, faith and obedience. And that's why the battle is recorded the way it is. You see, normally when we write the history of battles, we go into all the details, the strategies, the movements of the troops, the the weapons, the technology, the heroes, all of that. That's how we write histories of war. But the count of this battle is very different. The actual conflict is very short. Verse 20, the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. It's actually very brief. But we have this very long and drawn-out description of the build-up. We are told God instructs Joshua, and then we see Joshua instruct the people we're told all of these instructions around how they should march and who should stand where and all of that kind of stuff. And it's repeated a number of times because the emphasis is on God's people following God's instructions. That's the strategy. And really this whole thing is about worshipping God. As, uh, as the writer David Firth says, the whole account is effectively an extended act of worship. Jericho will not fall to military strategy, but rather to a people who are submitted to doing God's will. That's the whole goal. And so the whole focus of this story is God's power as well. So you might notice the the details around the marching and how they're, they're in this very careful procession. There's soldiers and behind them there's the priests blowing the trumpets. And then there's the Ark of the Covenant, and then behind that is another set of guards. We're being pointed here to the focal point, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. If you were here last week, you you would have heard us talk about the Ark of the Covenant. It was basically this box that symbolized God's presence. It showed where he was and his power. God is omnipresent, but this was the special place where he was. And so wherever he was leading his people, the ark would go first. So we saw last week that the ark went first across the River Jordan, and now here as they march around the city, it's the ark that is the centre of it. That's the key thing because God is pointing them to his presence. As Jackman puts it, God is with his people in their very midst to accomplish his victory for them. It's all about God. It's the same thing with the number seven. You might have noticed how many sevens there were in this passage. Seven priests blowing seven trumpets for seven days. The people marching around the city seven times on the seventh day. It's like a Dr Seuss book or something. But actually seven is a number that crops up all over the Bible. The story of creation. It's created in seven days. In Jewish life, the seventh day. Was the Sabbath where they would rest? The week would be completed. Uh, they would have a year of jubilee after uh, seven times seven years. There's all of this stuff around seven, and you could almost say that seven is God's favorite number, so to speak, because every time it said something, it was there. It said something to His people. Warren Weasby explains it in biblical numerology. The number seven represents completeness or perfection. The Hebrew word translated seven or shiva comes from uh, the word that means to be full or to be satisfied. And so anything involving the number seven was especially sacred to God's people. It spoke of God's ability to finish whatever he started. And so again, we have this picture that as long as they follow the instructions, as long as they obey, then it will work. If you walk around seven times, not six, not five, but seven times, then God will complete the job. So when the victory comes, it's clear that it's all about God. You know, there's this song about this story. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho, Jericho. You, I don't know if you know it. It'll be in your head now. And there's the idea is that, Jericho, that Joshua is the hero of this story. But actually you can see that that's not the case, is it? It's God who fought the battle of Jericho. It's God who gave them the victory. And all they needed to do was to show faith, to trust him and to obey him. And that's actually how the story is remembered. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. When God's people trusted God and did what he asked them to do, then the walls fell down. So God is the hero of this battle. He is the warrior He won the battle. And there's something really wonderfully encouraging about that. But there's also something a bit confronting too. You see, if you read on, you'll see just what the victory involved. The wall fell down, the people rushed in and captured the city, and then in verse 21 we read, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And then verse 24, they burn the city with fire and everything in it. Like this is a total destruction. Everyone is destroyed. And this raises questions for us. Like how can God allow this? And why would God command this? I mean isn't God supposed to be good and kind and loving and merciful? Why is there so much violence here? This is a a vexed, a big issue and a really complex one. There's actually something that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. This keeps coming up throughout Joshua, so I want to kind of look at it week by week. So I won't say everything tonight, but I will start by saying that I want us to look at this through a spiritual lens. Remember, this whole physical battle of Jericho is actually a, a spiritual thing. That's what's going on here. And so these people... There is a spiritual component to this violence. God is responding to spiritual enemies. You see, the people of the land, the people of Jericho, were set against God. They were his enemies. It was a profoundly evil culture. Deuteronomy 12 says that every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. That's a reference to how they would sacrifice their children in their worship services. There's actually archaeological sites that point to something like 20,000 babies sacrificed in one place. Like it's it's horrific. See, when we come to church, when we come to worship, we we sit here in nice pews and we sing and we read the Bible and we say hi to each other. In their worship services, they were destroying, sacrificing babies. There was all kinds of horrific kind of sexual perversions and rituals and so on. That was how they worshipped. And so this became part of their culture. It wasn't just condoned or allowed or overlooked. It was endemic. It was, it shaped their culture and their ethics. So they imagined that their gods, for instance, committed incest, and so the people would commit incest because that's how it all worked. That was okay. That was moral. That was good even. This was a, a broken culture, a vile and disgusting culture, deserving of God's judgment. I mean, we would have to say that, right? I mean, if If we were to see someone throwing babies into the fire, we would demand that God would do something about that. We would say justice demands a response to this. Sin demands a response. And that's what we're seeing here. When God sends his people to destroy Jericho, they are fulfilling God's judgment, a judgment that the people of Jericho have earned by their actions. In fact, we're actually told in Leviticus 18 that the land had become unclean because of their sin. They dirtied everything, ruined everything, and the land, we're told, vomited out its inhabitants. It's like the the land could no longer stand them. They couldn't handle it. And so evil were there, that even the destruction of the city is not enough. In verse 25, 26, after Jericho is destroyed, Joshua pronounces a curse on anyone who would rebuild the city. This is so so wrong that we can't even revive this at all. It's irredeemable. And yet even in the midst of God's judgment, what I see is an offer of mercy because I think he gives them a chance to repent. See, they knew that God's people were coming. In chapter 2, we saw Rahab. We met Rahab from the city, and she said, we've heard about God. We've heard about his power. We know that the people were afraid after chapter 5. We, we know that they were afraid that God had brought them across this Jordan. They were afraid of God. They knew, they sensed God's power. And yet what we see here is they remain defiant. They sense God's power, they fear it, and still they resist it. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why we have this strange description of the battle. See, what were they thinking as the Israelites marched around for six days? Some of them might have been scorning it, like, is that all you've got? But I suspect many of them were starting to feel a bit intimidated What's happening here in the, this eerie silence? And then on the seventh day, oh, they are going around more than once? What's going on? There's three to five times, six. What's happening here? It's like a, a building storm about to break. But at no time did they repent. I think God is offering them cycles of repentance. You see this, respond to this. Yes, you feel the fear, now respond in humility. See, that's what Rahab did, we saw in chapter 2. She'd heard of God's greatness and she said, he is the God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and so I I want mercy. And we see, as we read on in chapter 6, that she received mercy. So surely all of them had that opportunity. God offered them the chance to turn. They sensed God's power, they feared it, but rather than humble themselves, they defied him. They set themselves against God. Now, we're going to talk lots more about that whole thing, but I want us to see here that spiritual conflict that's happening here. These people are setting themselves against God. It's a physical battle, but it has this spiritual reality within them. And I would suggest that that conflict between good and evil, between God and his enemies, continues on today. In fact, it's a thread that runs right through Scripture and history. It's there in Egypt when the Pharaoh set himself up against God and enslaved God's people. It's here at Jericho, the people of the land resisting God, and it continues on right through the ages, right to our moments, people resisting God and setting themselves up against his authority. We see it today in the growing tide of persecution, physical persecution in many countries, and increasingly here, a social and political persecution. We see it in a rising flood of evil, the the worship of money and power, or the suppression and subversion of truth. We see it in the attacks on the family, the building blocks that God has created for society. We see it in the perversions of God's design for gender and sexuality. We live at a time now where the rainbow, which was a symbol of God's incredible grace, has has turned into a symbol of man's determined defiance against God. And what we're seeing in this physical realm around us originates in a spiritual realm the physical manifestations of this spiritual reality around us. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now perhaps we don't really realise that or we find it weird to even talk about, hard to imagine that there's this spiritual dimension here but we're told repeatedly in Scripture that it is here. And then we're called to apply ourselves to this conflict. Ephesians 6 goes on, Therefore take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the, the sword of the Spirit. That's what God calls us to do. And it's hard and it's brutal. We're told in Peter that the devil is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking who he can devour. But we fight with God's strength. You see, that in Joshua 6, we see that Jesus is a warrior who comes to fight for his people and to do his work. And that same Jesus is here today. And he continues to be the warrior. Matthew 28, 28, after his resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples and I am with you till the end. I am with you. Just as he came to Joshua to be with his people, he comes to be with us. And he comes with the assurance of victory. I don't know if you noticed this, but that was the promise he gave to Joshua. 6 verse 2, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Before the battle even begins, Jesus knows how it will end and it's the same for us. Jesus says in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. It will be difficult. There will be conflict, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The victory is already won. Warren Wiersbe says God's people don't simply fight for victory but from victory because the Lord has already won the battle. And so all he asks of us is faith and obedience, to trust him. And that means to to trust his strategy, to trust his strength. See, I think we, we attempted to fight our own way, and that kind of leads in one of two directions. Either we become incredibly afraid and panic, we feel our weakness, so we squirm and, and so on, and maybe we, we try some technique that we think will work, or we become overconfident and we trust our own resources and forget about God's strength and find ourselves flailing. Instead, we need to trust God and His methods, even if they seem Crazy. That's how it is here in Jericho. I mean, this military strategy is not in Sun Tzu's Art of War. That's not where you're going to find it. And neither is his strategy for victory in the great spiritual conflicts. As one writer puts it, God actually goes out of his way to choose absurd means to do his will. That's constantly true, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is constantly using the most unlikely means, the most unlikely people. So when we feel weak, when we question whether God will win, we can be confident because that's exactly the place where he wins from. And ultimately, he did this with Jesus, didn't he? You see, the spiritual conflict is not just out there, but it's in here. It's not just those people. It's us. It's all of us. Within each one of us, there is a spiritual conflict. God created us. God designed us. God knows what's best for us, and yet we resist that. We fight that. We fight him. And that's what we call sin. That's our defiance of him. And we here in church, perhaps we're the guiltiest of all because we know God's power. We have heard and seen his power, and yet still we defy him. The people of Jericho had some sense of God's power, but we have so much more, and yet still we defy him. And so we deserve God's judgment. I mean, we said that before, didn't we, about Jericho. They're doing the wrong thing. They deserve God's judgment. So we deserve God's judgment too. The glorious mystery, the absurd mystery of grace is that when God judges, he chooses not to judge us. He offers us salvation. He pours out his judgment on himself. Jesus is judged in our place. That's the wonder of the gospel, that Jesus, the great warrior, comes also to be the saviour, that Jesus, the lion, on the Old Testament, becomes the lamb who is sacrificed for us. And when God's judgment is poured out and destruction rolls, it's on Jesus rather than us. And all we need to do is to respond with faith and obedience, to acknowledge our sin, to bring it to him, and to receive his grace and his forgiveness. Do you know, there's this beautiful moment in chapter five as Joshua is being prepared. He faces Jesus. He senses the power and greatness of Jesus, this great warrior. And what's his response? He falls on the ground. As one writer hints, before the walls of Joshua, uh, before the walls of Jericho fall, Joshua falls. He falls on the dust. He humbles himself before Jesus. So will we humble ourselves before Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, the one who could bring judgment but is also willing to take that judgment upon himself? Will we humble ourselves before him? And then will we rise in trust and obedience? See, he is doing his work. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Though he may be resisted, he can never be overthrown and he will complete his task. So your day is coming where the church which feels so weak and small and pathetic. We're told in Revelation 7 that a great multitude, Jesus is gathering a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language. Jesus is gathering all of this. And so his work will be done and we get to be a part of it, he invites us to receive him and to live with him. Uh, The writer Robert Hubbard picks out a few lessons from this passage and I'll finish with this. The first thing he says, "If, if God is the warrior, then we are not responsible for the victory. That's what Joshua was encouraged with. He humbled himself before Jesus and was reminded that he could go in God's strength. So it wasn't reliant on him. So if you're worried about uh, whether we will win as a church or whether the kingdom will continue to come, it's in God's hands. He is the commander. And secondly, you don't need to be paralysed by fear of the enemy. The devil can feel imposing and intimidating to us, but Jesus is stronger. As we sing in, mighty, in the, A Mighty Fortress, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for, lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Now, what's that word? It's Jesus. So thirdly and finally, realise the power that is at work within you. See, the God who has all power, the commander who raised the walls of Jericho and brought it to the dust, Is also the one who brings us together and builds something beautiful. That power is at work within us. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. He is marching us around the walls of Jericho today. He is leading and guiding his people. He is among us. He is within us, completing his work. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you for uh, the courage of your people, but most of all, we thank you for the greatness of their commander. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one, the angel of the Lord, the one who comes to lead your people, to give them victory. Lord, help us to find strength in you. Help us to humble ourselves before you, just like Joshua. May we humble ourselves before you. And may you work in and through us to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.